Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back, uh, post-coffee time, and uh, welcome to the new year. Welcome to 2014. Hopefully your Christmas and New Year's time was restful and fun. Hopefully people stayed healthy and uh, warm enough. Just talking to a few of you that done some traveling or even stayed here. It was cold. It was cold, but I heard a story, and I take a little bit of pride of this because where, where I grew up, which is really about the same climate of, of here, um, I, I grew up in the Puget Sound area in Washington State, and my aunt and uncle, who have lived in Montana for like the last 20 or 30 years in Billings, where it's cold there, right? Like it gets well below freezing. It's kind of similar to the prairies, I guess, with culture but, and, and the climate and all that sort of thing. But anyhow, they, they moved to, to close by to where my parents live, and it got, they felt so cold in November and December that they actually went out and bought sweaters, I'm like, you guys are from Montana. Like, it's not even freezing in Seattle. But, oh, it's a different cold. It's a wet cold. And so then I feel vindicated when I feel cold, and it's you know, very much different in Toronto or Alberta or other parts of the country. Well, um, one of the things that I, I've done over the Christmas break for, for many years, and I enjoy doing it again, was I got to read a book. And every year, I uh, come right around end of November, I think to myself, well, what's my, what's my Christmas book going to be? It's not something I have to read. I read it purely just for pleasure and the enjoyment of reading a book. And so that was one of the things I, I did over Christmas that I thoroughly loved. I'd had this book selected in my mind for a while, got at the library, and I started reading it. And, and whenever I have a book that I love to read, I carve out as much time as I can to just read a little bit more. So, you know, people are out Christmas shopping, I'm at home reading the book. And I go visit with my, my in-laws, and they're watching a TV show I don't care about, Gives me some time to read a couple chapters of my book. I put my son to bed. I know he's going to come out about three or four times from the bed because he's looking for some more action with the family. I sit on the stairs waiting for him. I read a few more pages of my book. I mean, it works out great. Any time that I had, I would read as much of this book as possible. And this year's book was the autobiography of Andre Agassi. I don't know if anyone's read it. If we have any tennis fans here, I'm I'm a quite a fan of tennis, played a lot of tennis uh, growing up when I was younger, but more than that, I was just intrigued by what he would say about his own life, about his career, all sorts of different things, and this book was was excellent. I love this book. Well written, um, captivating stories, and and it it was great. I mean, my wife, Melissa, she didn't read any of the book, but she heard most all the stories because I kept telling her about it all, all break long, all these different stories about Andre Agassi. Now, whenever I hear Someone tell me about what book they're reading. Uh, I like to know their opinion, but a lot of times I'll, I'll go online, I'll Google the book, and I want to hear what other people are saying. I want to hear what journalists and, and periodicals and all these different reviews, I want to get a sense of what is this book like. I, it's kind of like when I go watch a movie. I don't like to go watch one blindly. I like to do a little bit of research and find out, well, what's going on in this story? And so I was actually about halfway, three quarters of the way through this book, and I thought, this book is so outstanding. I wonder what other people are saying about it. So one night after Christmas, I went online to uh, Amazon, and I read the reviews, and the people reviews were just like five stars galore. But then what I was really interested in was was what uh, different uh, sports journalists were saying and different magazines. Listen to some of the things that they said about this book. This is what Time Magazine says about this book. Agassi may have just penned one of the best sports autobiographies of all time. Check that. It's one of the better memoirs out there, period. An unvarnished, at times inspiring story told in an arresting, muscular style. Agassiz's memoir is just as entrancing as his tennis game. 
Sounds pretty good, right? But you might wonder, but is it a page turner? Well, listen to what Sports Illustrated says. The writing here is exceptional. It is can't put down good. Or, what does Rick Riley say from ESPN? He calls it the most riveting, literate, and toe-stompingly honest sports autobiography in history. But, if that doesn't convince you, listen to what Oprah says in her magazine. She says, Agassiz's style is open, all right, and his book, like so many of his tennis games, is a clear winner. Now, when you hear reviews like this that scream the praises of a book, it gets your attention. Now, I understand that part of this is the marketing, right? I mean, some of these people, they get paid money or there's incentives to say good things about the book. I understand marketing is a big part of this, but look at just the title of this book, Open. Like, could you possibly come up with a better title for Agassiz's autobiography than Open? Look at his face even. Like, he's not prepared for this photo. He hasn't shaved. He looks caught off guard. He looks completely honest, right? It's his open autobiography. I mean, even, you, you can't take any PR spin if you look at this. And then, of course, there's, there's the play on words, right? Tennis tournaments are called opens. It's perfect. It's brilliant. I once had an English teacher who taught me the value of judging a book by its cover. And before we even got to open up the book, before we even knew what the assignment was, we took a whole class just to look at a book by its cover. We'd study the front, we'd study the back, um, we'd get a sense of what the little description on the back was, but more often we'd just look at the cover and we'd point out these different things. This was in eighth grade, so you know it was really important, all the imagery and things that were on some of these novels we were reading. And And it's just interesting how how my teacher, I remember her point was that, you know, we so often hear you can't judge a book by its cover, but her point was, no, we do it all the time. You can judge a book by its cover. Her point was whether, whether we're aware of it or not, we all judge books by their cover. Your judgments might be fair, they might be unfair, but they're still judgments nevertheless. Which brings us to another book. This book. Now, this book does not have a fancy cover. Sometimes the Bible will be presented in a specific way. It'll look a little flashier. Maybe it'll have camo cover on it. Maybe it's specific to a demographic, to young adults, to women, to seniors. Who who knows? But basically, the Bible usually is packaged like this, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever stopped and looked at a Bible and thought about what sort of conclusions you'd come to come to by judging the book simply by its cover. But whether you know it or not, you probably have created some sort of judgments on this book. It's a long book. It's a heavy book. It's very plain. Even the letters, I mean, two words, Holy Bible. You couldn't have plainer, bolder, more boring letters, could you? Holy Bible. I remember as a kid, the first Bible that I got, I, I went to my, with my mom to the Christian bookstore we got my Bible, looked very similar to this, actually. It was a brown cover, and my mom gave me the option of having my name etched in it, having it engraved down at the bottom. Some of your Bibles might have that as well. And I remember I had this done, and what I remember was that was the most exciting part of the Bible, like visually, like kind of this nice cursive print you know, of, of my name down there at the bottom, and then you compared it to the block letters at the top, and it's like, huh, this, this book is so basic, 
But we don't just judge this book by its cover. We make judgments based on what's inside, as we should, right? I mean, we should be judging what we read in this Bible. We read it. We think about it. We listen to what other people say about it. We develop our own thoughts and opinions and assumptions. And I can't help but think, what if we did what some of these journalists and authors did to this book, and we wrote our own review of this book? What would we say? Like, honestly, what would your review of this book be? I won't make you answer. You might be a little embarrassed or ashamed to say it, but I thought of a few things that some of you might say. After failing on many New Year's resolutions, I finally read the whole thing. The editing is terrible. It sounds like it was written by dozens of authors. Once I skipped the boring parts, it wasn't that bad. Now, I hope your review would be a bit more positive than these, but I don't hear many people describe their Bible reading experience in the same way that they do the latest bestseller. Once in a while, it happens. Once in a while, I'll hear someone that says that they were so riveted by a story that they lost sleep because they stayed up reading the story, but it seems like more of a rarity than the norm. I can't think of a time when someone said that they couldn't wait to get back home so they could pick up their Bible and finish reading the book of Deuteronomy. Or just continue going in the prophet Jeremiah. Or even Romans. I, I, I don't have a memory of anyone telling me that story. But should this really surprise us? Should we be bothered that the Bible isn't a natural page turner? Is this what the Bible is supposed to be? I participated in the Alpha course this past fall. And one of the sessions, one of the evenings that we spent together, the whole topic was on the Bible. And like every evening of Alpha, before we, we start the video talk, you get a sense of what people are saying about the topic. It's called the, the street video, the little uh, uh, prequel kind of to the, to the topic. And, and that, that question that night that we were going to be talking about was, why should I read the Bible? Like, why should anyone read the Bible? Who cares about the Bible? And we're going to take a look here at this video. video. It's just about a minute and a half to give you a sense of what people said about the Bible. Bible? Um, what is the Bible? Well, that depends on someone's perception of it. Um, I don't really see how it's that relevant. For me, I even find it a bit hard to understand. If you were to really read the Bible properly, I think that you'd find a lot of contradictions, especially to the rules that, are, that people do make. To me, it's just a book, you know. And to me, it's just a bunch of stories. To be honest, no, nothing. I don't know anything about the Bible. When you start taking everything literally, I think it can create a lot of problems. And I think it's the source of a lot of problems when people look at it as a, as a literal, this is going to sound terrible, as a literal piece of literature. Like I, I think it really has to be looked at as a philosophy constructed by metaphors and symbols. The Bible comes free in, every, in most hotel rooms that you visit and is a very, very long book that's been modified way too many times. Um, yeah, I would say there is relevance in the Bible. I don't know for me personally, but many people definitely, definitely uh, put their faith in it. The Old Testament is so boring. I, I took it upon myself one summer that I was going to read the Bible just because I've been told it's a good read. 
And the Old Testament is the worst thing I've ever read. If the Old Testament is the worst thing that this guy has ever read, why should anyone read it? Why should any of us read it? Well, when I think of that question, the first answer that comes to my mind is, because we should. We should read the Bible, right? That's what we should do. That's not a very good answer. But I think it's what many of us often tell ourselves. We should do it. It doesn't matter if it's boring or not. We should read it. You might think you should read it because you think of yourself as being spiritual, or you want to be spiritual, so you tell yourself, I I must keep reading this book. Or maybe you think you should read it because it's kind of a given. It's kind of an assumption for church people, and you think of yourself as a church person, so, you know, it's a given. You should read this book. We come up with lots of reasons why we should do things or shouldn't do things. But I found that, personally, I'm rarely motivated by words like should or ought or must. These words don't really move me. Maybe I should, but I'm not. Telling myself that I should do something or be something that I'm not doesn't actually lead to change in my life. I need to feel inspired to change. And words like should almost never inspire me. Now, it's weird that I would actually need inspiration to read a book that is supposed to give me inspiration, but I think this is true for many of us here in this room. But the amazing thing is that the Bible actually gives us a reason to read it. And it's not a should. It's not an ought. It's not a must. It goes beyond these words. And actually, it's quite inspiring when you think about it. It's a very short verse. It's in the book of Romans. If you have a Bible and you know where Romans is in your Bible, you can turn there yourself. It's Romans chapter 15, verse 4. And it says this, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The Bible was written to teach us. There's 66 books here in our Bible, and the purpose of them is to teach us. There's stories, there's laments, there's commands, there's visions, there's parables, there's prophecies, there's psalms. All of it's to teach us. Now, I usually think of teaching as a transaction. You know, I I don't know something, someone teaches me something, and then I reach a point of now knowing that something. But this verse doesn't teach teaching like that. It doesn't look at teaching as a transaction. It describes teaching as an experience. And this teaching develops hope. It's a process that actually gives us hope. It's interesting that that during our Advent series, as we anticipated the arrival of Christmas, that's what we talked about. That was the big theme. That's the big theme every year is hope. What does hope look like? Where does hope come from? How can I have hope? How can I live with hope? How can I reach this, this time of being more hopeful? And here, the very purpose here of the Bible through the teaching is that it will provide us with hope. And the way that the teaching develops hope in us is through stories of endurance and encouragement. I don't know anyone who doesn't want an extra dose of endurance, especially parents. I don't know anyone who doesn't want to feel more encouraged. 
And I actually feel inspired to think that I can experience these things on the road to following Jesus because every follower of Jesus needs endurance and encouragement and hope. It's one of the big reasons why we come together and we do church together every week because we encourage one another. We press on. We want more endurance. We look towards hope. And the same is true for the purposes of the Bible. But of course, when I talk about feeling inspired, I'm talking about my favorite parts of this book. I feel inspired when I read the books and the verses that I like, that speak to me, that are easy for me to read. These are the parts that give me encouragement and endurance and point me towards hope. The quotable parts, the thrilling narratives, the memorable sermons, the parts that if I was given the chance, I would write a great review of. I would talk about how inspiring and thrilling and what a page-turner it was and how it captivated me and how it inspired me to actually change. It's easy for me to feel encouraged in these sections. And these are usually the parts that I recommend to others when they ask me, what should I read? Where should I start? What do you recommend? But one of the last books that I would ever recommend to someone as their first read in the Bible is the book of Hosea. I mean, there's other books in the Bible that have a rough beginning, but Isaiah is pretty brutal. Leviticus. We always pick on Leviticus, don't we? I mean, it starts with a detailed description of how to prepare a burnt offering. That's chapter one. And then we get other chapters, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, and sin offerings after that. The book of Numbers begins with a census that fills the first two chapters with names that are impossible to pronounce, and then it follows it up with a whole bunch of random numbers that seem to add nothing to the story whatsoever. Even Matthew, I mean, it's a gospel. It's the first New Testament book. There's great stories in it, but it starts off in the first chapter with a genealogy, just a whole bunch of names that if you really want to get something out of it, you got to look them up and go all throughout the Bible and probably go online to get some help with what you're trying to figure out. But Hosea, <laughs> Hosea is on its own island. First off, it's hard to find. Especially for people who are newer to the Bible, the book of Hosea is very difficult to find. So go to the table of contents. That's my recommendation of how you find it. It's in a section known as the Minor Prophets. It's the first book of the Minor Prophets. They're also called the Book of the Twelve. Twelve short books of prophets being used by God to deliver a message to the people. The books are apocalyptic, they're poetic, they're often confusing, and they're written during an odd time in history. It's the time when Israel itself is no longer a unified nation. They've actually divided. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. And if you keep track of the 12 tribes, it gets confusing because some tribes are in one area, some are in other, but they didn't split at six and six. No, 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 no. That would be way too mathematically logical. No, it, it's all skewed. And, and now the cities, they have different names. And the kingdoms, they have different kings. Sometimes they have multiple kings. Sometimes one king lasts for, for decades on end. And on the other kingdom, a, a king can only last a few months or a couple of years. So you're never quite sure, well, who are we talking about? And then there's the surrounding nations as well. And the prophets don't just talk about the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom or this king and that king. They talked about all these ancient tribes, and some of them you might recognize from Old Testament stories. Some of them are completely unknown. But the biggest trouble of all with Hosea is its beginning. Let me read the first verse to you so you'll understand. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. 
The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Biri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. See what I'm talking about? We've read one verse, and we've already run into eight different names. Nine if you count God, but God, by this point in the story, is a pretty well-known character. Now, reading a bunch of names isn't that big of a deal. You can skip over it. You can look it up if you want to. But things really start to get weird in the next two verses. Check this out. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblan, and she conceived and bore him a son. Three verses in. And this beginning might give some people reason to stop reading. Of course, it might give other people lots of reasons to keep reading. But in either case, we're filled with a bunch of questions. Did God really tell Hosea to go marry a promiscuous woman? Why would he do that? Would God ask me to do something like that? How could this marriage possibly be a good idea? Where's the wisdom in that? What does it say about God that he would tell a man to do this? We've got a pile of questions already, three verses into this book. Prophets have a way of doing this, creating questions. And it's not a bad thing, especially when we look at these questions together as a group of people. It's not the best book to read on your own if you've never picked up a Bible, but we're going to choose to study this book together. Not so we can know more things, but because it will help us build endurance because it will provide us with encouragement, because it will help us find hope. The book of Hosea is messy. It's loud, accusatory, it's raw. It's really not unlike what you and I experience at different times in our life. Hosea is just bold enough to talk about it. At its core, Hosea is a love story. It's a love story that's part tragedy and part comedy. And it's told in two different ways, but, and because it's told in two different ways, it actually gives us an understanding of what it's talking about at all. A man takes a wife, and he loves her wholeheartedly, just as God takes a people, and he loves them completely. The man's name is Hosea, and the woman he marries is named Gomer. The God in this story is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His people are his bride. They are the people of Israel. But the man is abandoned by his wife. Hosea is left alone while Gomer runs to another man. She's unfaithful to him even though he loves her. God is abandoned by his people. He watches as the Israelites worship other gods and break the covenant that they made together. They are unfaithful to God, even though God loves them. Now, we don't know why Hosea's wife leaves him. We don't know how long she's gone for, and when she returns, how long she'll end up sticking out with him. But we do learn why the people of Israel leave God, and we find out what leads them astray, and how it makes God feel. Hosea is a book about feelings. It's deeply personal. It's personal to Hosea. It's his whole family. It's personal to God the Father. It's his whole family. And if we choose to let it, it can be personal to us as well. This is the key distinction. It's not always what we read, but how we read it. 
Making it personal is what makes the difference. The point is to make it personal. The point is to make Bible reading personal. This is how we develop endurance. This is how we are encouraged. This is how we will find hope. I think this is why there are many times throughout the Bible when Jesus responds to a question, a question that someone asks him, and he responds by asking another question right back to them, a personal question. He says things like, what does Moses command? What is written in the law? How do you read it? Not what does it say, but how do you read it? Making it personal is why five people can read the same passage of Scripture and get five different things out of it. It's designed to be personal. It's designed to be a gateway of God to speak to each and every one of us. But making the Bible personal takes effort. It goes beyond just reading the words on the pages. One of the best metaphors I've heard for the Bible comes from a theologian named Karl Barth. The description is reused by author Frederick Buechner as he explains what reading the Bible is like. This is what Buechner writes in his book called Wishful Thinking. He says, the great Protestant theologian Karl Barth says that reading the Bible is like looking out the window and seeing everybody on the street shading their eyes with their hands and gazing up towards the sky, towards something hidden to us by the roof. They're pointing up. They're speaking strange words. They're excited. Something is happening that we can't see happening, or something is about to happen. Something beyond our comprehension has caught them up and is seeking to lead them on. To read the Bible is to try to read the expression on their faces. To listen to the words of the Bible is to try to catch the sound of the queer, dangerous, and compelling word they seem to hear. This metaphor makes the Bible reading experience sound all the more personal, doesn't it? All of us look through windows every day, and yet each of us have a way of seeing different things, being impacted in different ways. And in Beekner's description of the Bible, he makes a distinction between what's happening outside the window and the window itself. Outside the window, the streets are filled with people and stories that we read about. But the window is simply the book itself. Now, there's nothing wrong with noticing a window. There's nothing wrong with looking at it and examining it here and then. But the purpose of a window is not to be looked at for long. The purpose of a window is to be looked through. Listen to how Beekner concludes his section in this book. If you look out a window, you see fly specks, dust, the crack where Junior's Frisbee hit it. If you look through a window you see the world beyond. Something like this is the difference between those who see the Bible as a holy bore and those who see it as the word of God, which speaks out of the depths of an almost unimaginable past into the depths of ourselves. When we look through the window, the Bible becomes personal. When we look through the window, when we stop and crane our necks and we look out the window and we look at what people are pointing to, And speaking of and getting excited about, we give our chance to feel the sunlight that they see for ourselves, just the same as those on the streets are doing. This makes it personal. This makes it transformative. This actually begins to inspire us and gives us a reason to take action. Now, the view from the window changes from book to book, but the purpose remains the same. 
The point is to make it personal. And as we follow Hosea's story throughout this series, this will be our goal, to make it personal. Now, some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about making the Bible personal. You might think of the Bible as a jumbled mess of numbers and words and dates and people and chapters. Maybe you have no idea where to start or how to read it. You might still be looking for the book of Hosea in your Bible and you're angry at me because I haven't gone back there to read any more of it. But there's good news. You're not alone. Many of us here have trouble reading the Bible. Many of us don't know what it means or where something is found or how we apply it or how we actually look through the window. Our church is filled with people just like you. This is one reason why we have groups that meet together. We don't do it on our own. We do it together. We read the Bible together. We ask questions. We consider what it means, how it applies to us. We try to make it personal because that is how we grow. This sounds interesting to you. I encourage you to talk with me today because we've got a number of groups that are starting up in the next couple of weeks. And this might be the stepping point that you need to taking this book, just some boringly bound book that collects dust, and making it personal in your life. When we make the words of the Bible personal, it begins to change us. And we start doing things differently. In one story, Jesus told his followers to do something differently. He asked them to remember him by eating food. It was during the Passover, which was the holiday feast for remembering how God delivered Egypt or delivered Israel out of Egypt. And, and before Jesus was betrayed, he sat down and he ate a Passover meal with his friends, with the disciples. He told them to remember his body when they ate the bread and to remember his blood when they drank the cup. And this is a tradition that we continue to follow thousands of years after he had done it. Jesus asks us to continue in this tradition. And as we read the Bible, as we look through the window, we can see his disciples looking up, making that ordinary food personal, remembering the very one who asked them to do it. We want to remember Jesus together in this way today as well. And so we're going to pause and take some time to reflect on the words of today's message and on our own lives as we celebrate communion.